Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Welcome back to another Addy Hour podcast episode. Today, I'm really excited because I actually have someone physically here with me in the studio. That's a rare occurrence, but something that I think is going to be a lot of fun. And today I have the pleasure of hosting somebody that I've actually known about for a while, but only recently met. Um, so it's been nice to be able to connect with him and really excited to host this conversation. We're going to be talking about faith, science, meaning, and purpose. Um, and I know there's a lot that's in that, but I think you'll see why as we jump into the episode. So again, grateful that you all are here. Just want to acknowledge again, that there is a lot that's going on in our world. And I just always want to make sure that people take time to pace themselves to just uh, take time to... Uh, have that self-care, care for those in your lives, while still paying attention to these important things that are affecting a lot of us um, around the world. So I think it's always important to acknowledge that even as we jump into this conversation. And in some ways, I think the conversation today, especially as we talk about purpose and meaning, will tie in with some of those themes as well. But to jump in, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sam Wilkinson. Sam is an associate professor of psychiatry here at the Yale School of Medicine. He also serves as the associate director of the Yale Depression Research Program. He received his BS in mechanical engineering, summa cum laude, from Brigham Young University, BYU, and then later went on to medical school at Johns Hopkins in uh, Baltimore. He later completed his residency here at Yale and then joined the faculty um, doing his postgraduate training and has continued on in his research and in his clinical practice. So his research focus primarily focuses on depression and suicide prevention. He's been funded by multiple different agencies, including the National Institutes of Health, also the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. His research and articles have been featured widely in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. He's also received multiple numerous awards. But one of the things, in addition to all those things, I'm really excited about is his forthcoming book, which will be released in 2024. It's called Purpose. What Evolution and Human Nature Imply About the Meaning and Purpose of Our Existence. So a lot that's there, something that I'm looking forward to reading. Just want to also mention that he has had various experiences before he uh, arrived here at Yale as a young man, served as a mission on a mission for his church in Nevada from 2002 to 2004, actually learned to speak fluent Spanish during that time and enjoy a variety of Latino cultures. He also served as a bishop for his local congregation from 2017 to 2023. I know that's something we'll dive into in the conversation as well. 
He lives in the state of Connecticut with, with his wife and five children, and I know he's an active uh, family man as well. So that may come up in the conversation. As you all know, we always just see where these conversations go and a lot that we can uh, jump into today. But my pleasure to welcome Sam Wilkinson to the Add Hour podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you uh, you having me on the show. Of course, of course. And as, as things often go <laughs> with uh, the size of our university, it's sometimes funny to me how often I meet people that I've been working close to for so many years. So I feel like that yeah. is the case for us as well as I've heard your name in lots of different avenues and circles and circumstances. So great to be able to connect here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Of course. And as my listeners know, as you know as well, I always like to just start out with a check-in just to see how you're doing day to day with everything we're navigating in society and with everything that you're balancing isn't the right word, but juggling maybe yeah. with yeah. family juggling. life, work life, <laughs> research, clinical. So any anywhere you want to take us is completely fine. Uh, thank you. Thanks for asking me. I'm doing well, all things considered. Mm -hmm. It is a, a difficult time in the world. Um, I think probably more than anything, my family relationships help keep me grounded. Mm -hmm. My Certainly my wife keeps me grounded and, and humble, mm -hmm. and my kids keep me humble. Um, so... Trying to balance, juggle, as as you say, uh, lots of different uh, responsibilities and and wearing different hats, but uh, for the most part, enjoying it and okay. trying to trying to overcome the 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 struggles we inevitably all all bump into. Mm. Yeah, that's good to hear. Thanks. And perspective, and and I don't know if you have the experience that I do of critiques, depending on the age of the the children, and even with this podcast, as we were developing things and thinking about different logos and. Pictures and things like that. The kids were were willing critics. I'll just say to <laughs> that. Why are well, you doing that? So. Well, well, they certainly keep me grounded. <laughs> About a year ago, I gave, I was asked to give a a, a talk to mm -hmm. up and coming junior faculty about how to be successful in research. And I remember telling my family this the night before at the dinner table. And my son, one of my sons, who was probably about eight years old. I said, well, I'm, I'm giving a talk tomorrow about how to be successful in research. And he looked at me and says, Dad, why are you giving that talk? You're not successful. <laughs> oh, Did you ask him why his perception was that to no, maybe he, elaborate he, a little bit? He, he was joking, but it was a nice, It was again, it was a nice, uh, oh my goodness. They, they definitely keep you grounded and yeah. keep you from becoming and thinking that you're more than you actually yeah. are, you know, yeah. keep, keep, keep things put into yeah. perspective, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, that's a great story. I'd, yeah. I'd be curious, that even if he was joking in that scenario, to be like, well, <laughs> what what do you define success and how would you like, would you like to step into this for me? Yeah. <laughs> Which I have offered to my kids before. They have not taken me up on that yet, either Good, with talks yeah. or with writing or anything like that. But. Yeah, that, that, that would, I'm, I'm curious to imagine what direction that would take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Well, that's great to hear. I mean, just yeah. to be able to keep things light like that and have that yeah. perspective and that yeah. appropriate uh jovial prodding, shall yeah. we call it. Yep, so. yep, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Other question I wanted to ask you, just as I've talked about some of your different roles, just to give our listeners a sense for what your day-to-day -day actually looks like, um, clinically, research-wise, and even with the book coming up, and then if you want even to go into like how you attempt to juggle family and work and all that. Yeah, so I spend most of my time doing research, doing mm -hmm. clinical research, so in the form of clinical trials and there's a good amount of my time that is in administration and leading those efforts, coordinating mm -hmm. among the various people who are in our research group, uh, coordinating the, the research visits, um, certainly writing papers, mm -hmm. writing grants. Uh, so writing is a big part of, of what I do 
uh, trying to mentor the the up and coming generation people who are preparing to go to medical school or mm-hmm. graduate school, mm-hmm. um, and uh, then I also see patients. So a, okay. a, a small part of my time is is patient care outside of research protocols, and uh, that is uh, I think that is is something that I think is important in clinical research because it keeps you again along this this theme of keeping you grounded. It mm-hmm. keeps you mm-hmm. in touch with. What do the patients, what are they struggling with? What do they care about? What are the topics and the research questions that we could ask that would be most meaningful for them? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like in your hinting that that actually informs the research that you're doing? Has Very it much ever so. shifted things based on questions you're asking or how you're approaching things? Very much so. Uh, certainly being in the clinic, I think, helps tremendously to mm-hmm. know uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a gap between research and clinical endeavors in psychiatry. Uh, um, and I think to, to help bring that gap closer together, it's important to have research questions that are informed mm-hmm. by what are the big problems clinically. Right. And there are lots of them. Yeah. Uh, but I think having a foot in the clinic, for me at least, is very helpful to, mm-hmm. to keep my research relevant. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's really good to hear. <clears throat> I'm sure people are encouraged to hear that as well. I'm also imagining so people who are in academic settings or physicians or scientists who are hearing this might have a sense of what the clinical research looks like. But I also imagine people who are outside of those spheres who are sometimes hear about research often wonder, like, how much are things actually moving forward? So people hear, well, there's this clinical research here, this clinical research here, but I'm still struggling or my family member is still struggling, and especially around things like depression, suicidal ideation. Oftentimes people are wondering, are things actually moving forward and becoming more effective? Do we actually understand what's happening in the brain, what's contributing to all these things? I know those are some of the conversations we've had on this podcast before, but I'm just curious from your perspective, talk, speaking with those who are seeing things from the outside, like what would you say in terms of how you see the research actually moving things forward? Is Are we making practical steps, I guess, is another way to ask that question. Yeah, that's a really great question. There's lots of nuances to it. I think... I am optimistic at this mm-hmm. point. I, there's there's still a lot that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. The what's called the brain mind gap is is quite formidable as mm-hmm. a as a research question, mm-hmm. but it's an exciting time from a researcher to be in clinical depression research. There's all sorts of things that are either newly approved mm-hmm. and now standard therapies, things coming in the pipeline that will very likely be approved soon, uh, new ways of thinking about how to treat depression. Um, so a, a couple of years ago, the FDA approved what they, what they framed as the first rapid act, acting antidepressant. It's also, it's, it's approved for treatment resistant depression. It's also approved for depression with suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, earlier this year, the first pill, uh, oral antidepressant was approved for postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a, a resurgence in interest in what's called psychedelics. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. complicated, and yeah. I think we need to approach this in a way that is careful and uh, where we put safety paramount in, in importance and priority. Uh, but there's a lot of really promising clinical trial data that has come out and certainly a lot of things in the pipeline. Another area that I'm excited about is, is something called digital therapeutics, mm which is they're essentially apps that, that people have on their phones or mm-hmm. computers, mm-hmm. and they try to help people learn and integrate principles of psychotherapy. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons I'm excited about this is because up until this point, 
the the amount of funding that was devoted to developing psychotherapy and and similar approaches has been very 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 small mm. compared to the amount of funding that has been devoted to the development of drugs and right, pharmaceuticals. Right. And and certainly there are many cases where drugs and pharmaceuticals are helpful, mm-hmm. but most of us in this field recognize that these problems are very complicated and a a single approach with yeah. just one drug, there's not going to be a miracle drug right. that's going to help people mm-hmm. you know, just solve all their social problems and that, that sort of thing, yeah. which are, are often way heavy in, in mm-hmm. the development of these, of psychiatric illness. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it's not exactly the same thing as psychotherapy, yeah. but it has the potential, I think, to draw in quite a bit of funding from industry mm. to, and, and, and it has a way to standardize mm-hmm. these therapies in ways that, that up until this point we haven't been able to do. So there's a lot of things yeah. that at least as a researcher, I'm very excited about. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some real breakthroughs that have happened recently and will happen in the, in the short term. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. I mean, even for listeners, as, you, as you've described some of those changes, some of those new approvals, but then even as you're talking about some of the funding pieces, because as you've mentioned, others who've come on the podcast, Jerry Santacoro, who you work with yeah. pretty regularly, and just the importance of combining. So yep. as people have often yeah. said, in, in media spaces, it's important, even with the ketamine, to combine that with therapy. But to know that things can actually move in that direction yeah. from a funding standpoint, I think is really, mm-hmm. really important and really encouraging. Yeah, it is. It, it is very exciting. There's a lot going on. That's great. Um, well, not to pivot too quickly, because I know this is this is just one part of what you sure. do. Um, and I also want to, you know, tie in this idea of the book that's coming yeah. out, because I'm curious, you know, how that process came about. I'm sure as people are looking at the title of this episode and just thinking about all those pieces that are wrapped into. So maybe you can take us on a little bit of a journey about why a book on that topic, when you obviously have a lot to keep you busy <laughs> with your day job, that's already impactful and making a lot of uh, making a lot of inroads in a lot of ways. Yeah, so the idea for the idea of writing a book, I got this as a medical student. It's been a mm-hmm. long time, okay. and for about ten years, I put it on the shelf, mm-hmm. uh, but was able to pick it back up again right, really right before the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. But this idea came shortly after I started medical school. Okay. I uh, I I grew up in a religious home, religious tradition. For the most part, there was bit of rebellion in my teenage years, but, you know, for the most part, really latched onto this. I, mm-hmm. I bought into it. And for whatever reason, it wasn't until I got to medical school. Um, I, I went to medical school in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. It was a great experience. There were lots of wonderful mentors, friends that my wife and I met there and, mm-hmm. and had great relationships with. But at the beginning of it, it was, I was, my, my soul, if you will, was in turmoil. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out how does I, w- I was bothered by the perception of a conflict between science mm. and religion and i didn't really i didn't really confront this earlier in my life okay. in my undergraduate education mm. for whatever reason and i confronted it in medical school for the first time and there was a period of several months where i felt very uncomfortable mm. and i was wrestling with well is there actually a god is this are we just products of random chance? Are we Mm -hmm. intricate molecular accidents? Mm -hmm. Is there really no purpose to our existence? Is it just happenstance that Mm -hmm. we're here? And I went through a period of intense study and reflection, meditation and prayer. And I don't know how else to describe it other than I had a sort of epiphany, Mm -hmm. a a spiritual and intellectual epiphany. Mm -hmm. And 
there's certainly a lot still that I don't understand, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of questions that I still have. But what I've learned since that time has been incredibly satisfying, both from a spiritual and an intellectual perspective, to help me help these worldviews, these mm-hmm. the spiritual and, and academic worldview, mm-hmm. come a little closer together. Mm-hmm. Wow, that I mean, that's I'm just kind of taking it all in as you as you're sharing that story because that's pretty powerful to to hear Thanks. you describe that and also the journey that you went on. Yeah. I mean, one question that comes up in my mind that all, others may also be curious about is so I mean, you had this shift in your perspective and this yeah. epiphany. I'm wondering if that changed your interactions with folks and or how folks perceived you, or if this felt more kind of as a, a personal journey as you were going through medical school and beyond. I think mostly it was a personal journey, but it certainly has helped me to prioritize where I spend my effort and mm-hmm. my time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the one of the the what I think is a really critical lesson that I I gleaned from this experience mm-hmm. was the importance of relationships. Mm-hmm. And there's you know so much data that mm-hmm. I've learned and read and studied since how important relationships are in our happiness mm-hmm. and well-being, mm-hmm. you know, mentally, physically. And uh, we often forget that because our brains seem to be wired in such a way that psychologists call it affective forecasting. We're mm-hmm. not very good at predicting how we're going to be feeling in a given situation. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, we're not very good at predicting what is going to make us happy. Mm-hmm. And so I keep needing to <clears throat> remind myself mm-hmm. Come on, dummy. It's the relationship. You know, don't spend too much time on your grants. You know, you're home, be at home, be mm-hmm. engaged with your kids and your mm-hmm. wife and so forth. So that has been one of the powerful lessons mm-hmm. that I have gleaned from this experience and the studying and research that have done related to it. Mm, that's really that's really good. I mean, I'm even thinking about that. Not being able to take the happiness. I would I would I'm speculating that I think we think we know what will actually give us happiness. Yeah. And that yeah. I don't it's, know if that's part of what's come up in that conversation from the psychological perspective, but. Sure. So you can think of it a little bit as almost a, a cognitive illusion, mm, right? Okay. We, yeah. we, we think we know what's going to make us happy mm-hmm. and then we get there and it's like, uh, this doesn't quite feel as, as good as, mm. as, um, as, as we think it would. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes this is referred to as the hedonic treadmill. Mm. So uh, there's a, a, a famous study, I think it was the 1970s. Mm-hmm. It examined two very different groups of people. One was a group of people who had won the lottery. Okay. And the other was a group of people who had suffered terrible accidents and become paraplegic mm. and lost, you know, lost the use wow. of some of their limbs. Okay. And so, you know, when you ask people what you know, what would you rather be, yeah. someone who wins the lottery or someone who has, suffers a terrible accident and you know loses the use of their legs? Of course, people say, "Well, of course." You yeah. know, and they examined these these two groups, and th- this was some period of time after these mm-hmm. these incidents had happened, and there wasn't really much of difference wow. between them in their their levels of kind of day to day well being, mm-hmm. what they enjoyed, mm-hmm. and so forth. Uh, that that's sometimes referred to as the hedonic treadmill mm-hmm. in. Um, in psychology where, you know, we think, oh, if I, if I just get this promotion or I get yeah, a, a raise, yep. I just need 20% raise, then I'll be happy and content. And you get that. And for a little bit of time, you feel better, mm-hmm. but it goes back to the set point. Yeah. Uh, and there's so many things that, that fall into this category. One of the, 
the big exceptions is relationships, mm. uh, both for better and for worse. Okay. So, you know, a good, warm relationship mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really seems to raise your, your kind of happiness and well-being set point, and a toxic relationship brings it down. Yeah. And even, even on those days where you don't see a person who you're in conflict with, mm. you are often still ruminating yeah. about it, and it's taking a toll psychologically yeah. on your happiness and well-being. So there's, there's just lots of really interesting research mm. suggesting that you know, we have these cognitive illusions. We think, oh, if I just win the lottery... Right. And, and you might feel better for a couple months. <laughs> yeah. But then you go back to the set point, yeah. especially if, especially if, you know, that wealth and that money, it gets in the way of relationships. Mm. That's a bad thing yeah. for your happiness. Yeah. So, um, again, this this journey that I've kind of gone on mm-hmm. to to prepare research for and write this book mm. has really just underscored to me the critical importance of of spending time cultivating and strengthening personal relationships. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, as you're talking, I can I can hear the time that you've put in to doing that research, but how impactful yep. it's been as well. And it seems like that, I mean, that whole importance of relationship and community can't be overstressed. Because even, I mean, even as you're talking about it, I'm thinking of people who said that over and over again. I mean, even some of the guests on this podcast who have reached, you know, high status in terms <laughs> of social clout and all that, who say the same thing, which they had already heard, but it, it's almost as if, you know, people have heard it, but it doesn't always sink in until you've ex- until we've experienced it, and so I'm curious if you feel like <laughs> hopefully in this book you'll be able to help some people get to that place before because obviously not everybody can experience that reaching whatever height they felt like was going to be that penultimate and then be like okay it's still not enough correct and I think we need to be continually reminded mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. and the importance of of relationships mm-hmm. so um, this is one of the reasons that I think it's important for me at least, mm-hmm. uh, to go to church, mm-hmm. uh, is that, you know, a big part of my church experience and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. So, you know, the, the fundamental commandment is to love God and mm-hmm. to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, you know, it's essentially telling you the relationships are important. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so again, I think because of the way that our psychologies are, are structured, mm-hmm. we need to continually be reminded of this mm-hmm. because if you, for me, at least, if I forget about this for a little bit, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll go back to, okay, I'm focused on grant writing, focus yeah. on writing my publications, whatever it is. Yep. I want to achieve some status. Mm. That feels good. There's, yeah. there's a, But it's a superficial type of good that pales in comparison to the profound mm. meaning and happiness and well-being that comes from mm-hmm. a warm and loving relationship with a spouse, a child, yeah. a sibling, a friend. Yeah. Uh, so... I think we need to keep reminding ourselves mm-hmm. because it, it seems like we're not wired yeah. to, to remember it. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, there's a, there's a saying that uh, there's a saying in my faith that that faith has a short shelf life, uh, and and kind of analogous yeah. to this, the the understanding that relationships are really important mm-hmm. also has a short shelf life, mm-hmm. and you need to keep pulling out that book and remembering it's the relationship. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, that's really good. That was actually going to be my next question, even in terms of the faith community church part, how much you feel like that has not only just informed your work, but just your experience and as you've tried to remember these pieces. But I think it's also interesting how you mentioned the two ways that community can go. Because even yep. yesterday I was having a conversation with um, a lot of clergy within the state of Indiana through an organization they have and talking about these aspects of community. And someone made the comments slash question about that very piece. Sometimes community is a thing that actually helps people and navigating whatever emotional wellness challenges they have, but can also be the cause 
of the challenges or make things worse. So how do you see that all fitting into this? Not that that's an easy question, but. <laughs> <laughs> how to create a utopia, you basically ask, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> do I got the question right? It's, it's something with which we all struggle. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have a magic answer. I think, um, I think a big part of it comes comes back to the individual relationships. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This this question of how how to build a better community, it's tricky. It's very tricky, and I think a lot of us have a sense of what a good a good community would look like. It would value principles of justice and um, inclusion and belonging. Mm -hmm. Also, fairness and the the opportunity for people to rise if they came from an impoverished background, mm -hmm. the opportunity for them to, to rise to a, a higher standing and status. Um, the problem is is that we wrestle with how to prioritize these these issues, and that mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why there's polarization. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's one of the political dialogues that goes mm -hmm. in is what is more, what is the more yeah. important issue? Yeah. And certainly I'm of the opinion that we need to tone down our political discourse mm -hmm. and, and try to have civil disagreements. Mm -hmm. um, but there's another aspect that I think, and I, I, I do refer to this uh, somewhat in, in my book, one of the impediments to building a better community is that there's an aspect to our nature that is not good, that is uh, selfish, mm -hmm. that is can be mean-spirited, can be cruel, can be aggressive, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. there, there, unfortunately, that is a capacity of human beings. I, I think it's hard to look far into yeah. the history of, our, yeah. of, our, of humanity and not see examples of that, of, of where things have gone wrong. So maybe a different way to ask the question is, how can we help people voluntarily choose to be better? Mm. Um, because even if we can't agree on exactly what a good society looks like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. looks like in terms of ordering those principles, mm -hmm. I think the vast majority of people would agree that if we can get people to behave better, mm -hmm. building the good society, whatever that is, yeah. is going to be easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really insightful. I mean, you're, you're piquing my curiosity about the book too, and the ways that you're bringing that, bringing that in. Um, I mean, but just to think about, I mean, obviously the book's not out yet. I haven't read it, but I'm thinking it almost sounds like there's so many topics that you've integrated because you've talked about the faith and science piece. I mean, even in the subtitle evolution and human nature, yeah. how does that all wrap into this idea and some of these concepts that you've been talking about? Yeah. And you do know it, it is a very broad book. It it was a lot of fun to write. It was challenging in many ways. There mm -hmm. are a lot of kind of fairly big topics mm -hmm. that I try to address. I can't, you know, I could write a whole book on each chapter, yeah. Yeah. and maybe I'll do that if, <laughs> if this one goes well and if, if, my, if my wife lets me. But um, so I alluded to this this part of our nature that is not good. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let me go back just a little bit yeah. when, with this struggle that I had when I was a medical student. One of the, one of the big things that bothered me in this faith and science conflict that mm -hmm. I perceived, and, and a, a lot of times I think when we say the conflict between faith and science, a lot of it comes down to evolution, mm -hmm. the theory mm -hmm. of evolution, yeah. right? That, that, that is a big kind of, for, um, it hasn't necessarily intentionally been that way, but it's been a big wedge in mm -hmm. a lot of people. And a lot of people of faith, it's been a stumbling block. How does this fit in? You know, um, 
one of the issues that bothered me was what evolution implied about human nature. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's a quote uh, of a woman. This is most likely didn't happen, but around the time that Darwin first came out with his, his, mm-hmm. his initial book in 1859, The Origin of Species, there's a woman who, upon first hearing of the theory of evolution, exclaimed, my dear, let us hope that it is not true. But if it is true, let us hope that it does not become widely known. And and kind of this sense of, oh, what it implies about human mm. nature is terrible, mm. uh, is the survival of the fittest. So are are we really at our core selfish and greedy and aggressive and, mm. and all these other things mm. that initially we think is, that's not good. So this was one of the, 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 the key dilemmas for me. Mm. So what, mm. you know, what does evolution really state about human nature? And... It turns out that it's complex, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, certainly we have a capacity for selfishness, but we also have a great capacity for altruism and cooperation. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of different theories and evolutionary evolutionary mechanisms that scientists think are responsible for this, and I can go into some of those uh, in in detail. Uh, but what it appears to me, and I'm not the first one to observe mm-hmm. this. But it appears that evolution has left us in this state of tension. Mm. We have a capacity for selfishness, but also altruism. We have a capacity for aggression, but also cooperation, mm. cruelty, but also kindness. Mm-hmm. And when you combine that with the empirical observation that we have at least some level of freedom to choose free will, mm-hmm. to me it seems that life is a test, Mm. that we have good and evil inherent within us and we have the freedom to choose Mm. and it seems like life is a test. That is part of Mm. the, what I would consider, and I know this sounds grandiose, but I I do think there's truth to it, that is part of the universal purpose to Mm. our existence is to Mm. choose, to develop our ability to choose between good and evil. And it's it's almost written within our DNA, so wow. to speak. Wow. You said a lot. <laughs> I'm trying to decide where to go next. There's so many different things that, and that's why it's good that you have the book because people yeah. will be able to delve in yeah. and unpack. <clears throat> Rather than actually unpacking any of those specific pieces, I'm sure. curious, and this is just going to be a little bit of a speculation on your part, yeah. but how you think or maybe how you hope that people will respond to the book with all those, even in that, you know, that one response you have with all different pieces that you've put in there. Like, how do you think this will land with people? <laughs> Maybe depends. that's not, that's not a fair question. It, I know. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a complicated question. Mm-hmm. Of course, it depends on the person. Yeah. I mainly wrote this for people of, who have some religious belief or some mm-hmm. faith belief mm-hmm. in a higher power or a higher purpose to our existence mm-hmm. and are not sure how that squares with mm the most up-to-date advances in science Mm. and understanding of ourselves and the universe with Mm. science. So I don't expect this to, I mean, it would be great, in my opinion, it would be great if it, if it really caused, you know, a lot of people to say, oh, I now believe in God because I, I, I read your book, Sam. Mm. Uh, I I don't necessarily expect that to happen. Mm. There's a quote that I like, I I believe it's attributed to a man named Austin Farrar, who was a contemporary and friend of C.S. Lewis, who basically said, argument cannot create faith, Mm. but the lack of argument can destroy faith. Wow. So the 
I, I don't I don't think that I can rationally necessarily persuade mm -hmm. people to believe. Mm -hmm. I think for most people that comes through personal experiences, mm -hmm. through prayer, through perhaps some uh, miracle or miraculous experience mm -hmm. that they've they've encountered. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't educate people and give them a a rational framework where their faith can be defended mm -hmm. against you know argument from there's a lot of you know maybe not so much anymore in the early 2000s there mm -hmm. were the, the the four atheists that you know the, the I, I can't remember the how it was phrased but a lot of people saying look this is a relic of the past mm. we need to do away with this this is harmful for society i disagree with that mm -hmm. and part of my book is to provide people of faith a an understanding of the most up-to-date science of human nature and evolution mm -hmm. and provide them with a way that they can rationally reconcile mm. their beliefs in a God and a higher purpose for existence mm -hmm. with, with science. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful because oftentimes, I mean, similar to some of the topics that we've talked about on this podcast, that's a question that a lot of people are thinking about or wondering about, but don't always have the space to discuss or read about more globally. So I feel like, I mean, like you have a sense of what you're trying to do, the audience you're trying to reach. And, and again, it could be a broader audience, but I think that's really, I think that'll be very helpful and very informative for a lot of people. Do you see it facilitating discussions as well I, I, or conversation? I, I hope it does. Mm. Certainly what you, what you just mentioned, that was a very core part of my experience mm. that led me to write this, this book mm. is this wrestle I had yeah. and this, this kind of internal discussion I had um, along with this, the studying of the literature and the research and so forth. Um, I hope it stimulates discussion. I, I, I do think these issues need to be discussed. I think, I think, you know, in, in a sort of response to some of the academics who are, um, are saying that, look, you know, religion should be done away with and God is a myth and we've outgrown it as, uh, as a, as a, as humanity, um, there seems to be very much this, sometimes people refer to it as a God-shaped hole in the human heart. Mm. And there's this very natural tendency, natural tendency to believe in God. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going anywhere. I think, mm. I, I do think the, um, the way, <laughs> the way that human nature is, is that the atheists are, are fighting, losing battle in convincing all of humanity not to believe in God. Mm. That doesn't. That's not necessarily an argument for. Oh, this must be that there is God. Right, right. I, I think that there may be some argument for it, but um, I do think faith is going to be with us in some form. Mm. Uh, uh, these days, people tend to um, tend to seem to prefer to say that they're spiritual, not necessarily religious. Mm. I think there is value in organized religion. Mm. It's tricky because anytime you have an organization, there can be abuses of power mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, but uh, but I think there is great good that can be done and has been done uh, in the name of faith. Certainly not to say that there hasn't been uh, abuses and so forth, and mm -hmm. those need to be rooted out. We need mm -hmm. to do everything we can to mm -hmm. to um, do away with those. But mm -hmm. I think for many people, it is a powerful for source of good and of meaning mm -hmm. and of purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really well said. And I think truth to that and then just even ways that people are— I don't know if reconcile is the right word, but reconciling the fact that faith is here and, like you said, it's going to be around for a while. I think it's here to stay in yeah. some form. Yeah. I really do. There, yeah. there seems to be, again, what some academics call this God-shaped hole in mm -hmm. the human heart mm -hmm. and this need to believe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, as because it seems like that 
that um, appreciation that you've had has maybe come over time over the years, a little bit removed from when you were wrestling through all the things as a medical student. I'm curious if you, from your perspective, even before this book comes out, if you've seen changes in receptivity to faith conversations, either in your clinical work, academic, research-wise, or do you feel like things have been well, the same? Um, no, I think, and and you and I talked about this one at one point, uh, maybe a few months ago, there was this perception that I had mm-hmm. that most people who surrounded me in academics did not want to talk about faith or did not want, did not have any sort of faith. Mm-hmm. And my experience is that that's more perceived mm-hmm. than real. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of people who believe and would be welcome to, of course, this needs to be discussed in a way that is uh, respectful mm-hmm. and not coercive and so forth. Um, but there are a lot of people who are open at least to a brief discussion and acknowledgement. Was, mm-hmm. Yeah. How was your weekend? Well, it was great. I, I had this great experience at church and mm-hmm. the lesson was great and, and so forth. Um, as I have, and there may be a little bit of confounding here because I, I've, with time I have, you know, quote unquote, climbed the ladder and right. I, I'm, you know, have a little bit more authority than I used to. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I do think, think that there's truth that, that there are a lot of people who are more than willing to engage and discuss and think about these issues, of course, mm-hmm. done respectfully, then maybe uh, is perceived mm-hmm. in, in an academic environment. Yeah. 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 I would definitely agree with you. I know we had that conversation before too, but I, I, I keep saying, I keep getting surprised at how yeah. open people are mm-hmm. to those conversations. Yeah. And, and some people are not. And some yeah. people, it's very, you know, some people seem uh, a bit averse to this. And, mm-hmm. and of course, I, I want to respect, I'm not going to, you know, stand on the soapbox and preach to them yep, yep. <laughs> in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's appropriate if people don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to be respectful of that. But, but if people do, then I think it's okay to be open about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think refreshing in the sense that people have been, at least in my experience, more open to just thinking about this from an inclusive standpoint too, of yep. hearing different people's perspectives, including their faith perspectives and not just diminishing people and saying, Oh, we're not going to talk about that here. Yep. We're not going to create room for that. So I think I'm curious. I mean, I'm, this is, there's no answer to this per se or the ears, but I'm curious, just, <laughs> you know, as your book is coming out in that shift, as it were, I don't have research evidence for it, yeah. but just anecdotally to how people will um, be able to think about that. I mean, even anecdotally again, being able to talk about, my own faith perspective yeah. with research and with life in an interview with Nature Neuroscience. Yeah. I would not have imagined that 10 years ago. <laughs> now, you know, now- Which I the, think is a great thing. Yeah, I, I, to be able know, to have I, that space. I respect space. you and I, I look up to you a lot for that and I think it's been a, a great dialogue that you've been able with mm. this podcast and the other, the venues that you have for speaking about it. I, I think it's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, for me, mm-hmm. it would almost be disingenuous mm-hmm. to say, no, this is a part of me that I can't talk about at work mm-hmm. or I can't bring to work mm-hmm. in any sort of form. Uh, again, I, I want to be respectful of other mm-hmm. people's mm-hmm. Uh, opinions and viewpoints, but this is a big part of who I am. Yeah. And and to say, I just got to leave that at home, yeah. to me, that's a little disingenuous. Yeah. Uh, again, it has to be done carefully mm-hmm. and respectfully. Yeah. Yeah. 100% agree. And I should give context for those who are not reading academic journals, <laughs> since that's a small group of us, but Nation Neuroscience is a, a respected yes, journal respected. in our field and very, very um, high level work that's put there. So yeah. to have that opportunity was a, was a huge blessing in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah, that's great. The other piece that I'm curious about, because this was in your bio as well, and I'm asking this a little bit shelf- selfishly, but about your role um, as a bishop in your local congregation 
as you're you know doing your work as a psychiatrist and a researcher, and I know you talked about giving sermons before too. And so what that experience has been like for you, and I, I'll tell listeners selfishly I'm mentioning that because I have been asked to give more sermons more recently yeah. as a neuroscientist mm-hmm. to integrate the science, the faith perspective. And so it's always... I mean, I can tell when I stand in front of the congregation, it always feels a little bit different. I always at least try and break the ice and say, you know, they probably never listened to a sermon from a neuroscientist, <laughs> but apparently people have listened to sermons from a psychiatrist and what you've done. So anything you want to share just about what that experience has been like for you? Yeah, it was, that was a very formative experience. So I, I was asked to be a bishop um, not long after I joined the faculty. Okay. And so it was a, you know, it's, it is a fairly substantial time commitment. Mm-hmm. I would estimate that on a given week, it was roughly 15 hours of mm, work. Okay. And uh, when you when you serve in this role, in my community at least, you know, people do not see you as a psychiatrist first and also bishop. They see you as you are the bishop, mm. you are the, the person who is asked to be uh, our congregation's bishop. And so I see you as a bishop. Oh, you happen to be a psychiatrist? Oh, that's interesting. You mm. know, but um, the way it is done in my faith is that we don't have professional clergy. Mm, mm. So any person is asked to serve in sort of a leadership role mm. or a non-leadership role to help, you know, help with the clerical duties and so mm, forth. And mm-hmm. we got to uh, print the programs, right, that sort right. of thing, yeah. set up chairs before an activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so for me, you know, the, again, I was asked to be a bishop right as I, I joined the faculty. So it was a it's kind of an intense time, yeah. also a lot of young kids, and so uh, there's a lot of struggling, uh, uh, juggling, excuse me, of priorities and schedules and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really transformative, mm-hmm. and it was it was something I loved. Uh, it was also hard. Uh, anyone who has raised children might <laughs> say, "Oh, that sounds familiar," <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, it was very rewarding, but but also very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, spent a lot of hours thinking about people mm-hmm. in my congregation and their problems and how we could best help and support them. Mm-hmm. Um, had a lot of opportunities to speak publicly. It's not something where the bishop speaks every Sunday. Okay. Uh, I, w- I would you know, speak maybe every two or three months. Mm-hmm. Um, the, again, the way we do it, anyone could be asked. So mm-hmm. you go to our congregation. So next week, the bishop might pull you aside and say, hey, do you mind prepping some, mm-hmm. some talk, some sermon for next week's mm-hmm. uh uh, next week's um, church meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I learned a lot in my time in in that role. Uh, I grew a lot. I stretched a lot. Uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, one, one of the ways I learned was how what what drives people, how mm. to help people, how to align people's intrinsic interests mm. with um, with what what needs to get done, mm-hmm. and. Uh, one of the challenges, unlike in a lot of other organizations, is that no one's paid. Mm, and so mm-hmm. I can't be like, well, I'm going to cut your salary. Right. Oh, wait, your salary's already zero. <laughs> yeah. Can't so do much there. <laughs> it's all positive reinforcement. It's yeah. always, I'm so grateful. You know, we asked you to do this. You only did half of that. But thank you anyway. Yeah. It was, yeah. you know, I, you took time out of your family life to do mm-hmm. that. I'm extremely grateful. So mm-hmm. um, that that was that was an experience an experiential learning process that mm. I could not have learned yeah. any other way except through going through it. So yeah. um, it taught me a lot about human nature, mm-hmm. uh, taught me a lot about way, ways to organize mm. uh, things and, and people. And, um, and, and I think uh, more than anything, it mm. taught me that pretty much everyone 
has struggles, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has has difficulty, and that when you look at someone and you disagree with their politics, you disagree with whatever it is, you need to see them first as a person and mm-hmm. say, you know what, there's probably something that they're struggling with yeah. that I don't know about. And to be a little bit charitable in mm. your first impression or first encounter with them. Mm. That's such a healthy perspective. Yep. Yeah. Thank and you. I imagine Thanks. that that's also impacted your work too. I mean, you didn't say that explicitly, but like how you took those experiences and how you even operate, navigate in the clinical setting and academic settings and research settings. Well, cer- certainly as I've tried to help lead a research group mm. with employees mm. and, you know, when for whatever reason, some task is not getting done is instead of the first inclination of what the heck are you doing, Mm -hmm. you know, shame on you, but, you know, sit down, hey, how's it going? How's your life? What's going on? And a lot of times it's, oh, you know what? I'm really struggling with this family relationship. Mm. My uncle who's an alcoholic is, Mm -hmm. you know, struggling in this way or that way. And, you know, helping people, even if they just know that you care, you cared enough to listen, that helps quite a bit in in forming a cohesive group that Mm -hmm. is trying to accomplish a, you know, a, a cooperative task. Yeah. That's huge. I mean, it just goes back to that concept you mentioned at the beginning too, about community yeah. and relationship yeah, and how important that is mm-hmm. um, and the yeah. ways you're able to do that as a bishop. Mm-hmm. It's also maybe endearing, but humorous to think about the ways those lessons pop up in so many different spaces too. Even as you were talking, I remember years back, I shouldn't say years cause that's going to make me feel older, <laughs> but playing in a 30 plus uh, basketball league. So if yeah. I say years, that means I've been over 30 for a while, <laughs> which is somewhat true. Uh, but actually hearing some of the folks in that league, probably some folks who are you know, close to maybe 60 or so sharing that same perspective saying like, you never know how someone walks in the door and if they're yeah. acting out on the court, there might be something going on in their lives. And just even on the court, creating that space for yeah. people to actually have that room to kind of chat with folks on the side. Yeah. So obviously, the basketball court is not a congregation per se, yeah. but to think about those principles and how sure. important they are and how they apply to yep. so many different aspects. I'll put a little bit more weight in the way that you did that as a bishop, but it was just interesting to hear that, yeah. to hear that same comment in different spheres and different circles. Yeah. And to know, like you said for your book, how important mm-hmm. that is just for our human flourishing mm-hmm. in so many ways. So, My judgment and my experience is that most people are good. Most mm. people want to do what's right. Mm. Sometimes, a lot of times, when people act out, it's because they're hurting. Mm. And it's it doesn't excuse things, and mm-hmm. there need mm-hmm. to you know often be consequences for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. But uh, there also needs to be an understanding of what is the root of this. Yeah. And, and some love and compassion and caring, mm-hmm. uh, because external constraints on behavior... Mm aren't as powerful as if you can align intrinsic desires mm-hmm. of people to behave in the right ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And I feel like it's tying into your, your passion and your motivation just in, a, in your day to day, Yeah, your day to day cadence, your day to day navigation, your day to day thriving as well. So would you say there's one thing that drives you or there are multiple, if you were, if you were to summarize <laughs> one thing that drives a lot of or, things. Yeah, I, I mean, cer- things, but. certainly at the, at the, at the core of it is my family and my mm. family relationships mm. and my identity mm. as a father and mm. a husband are mm. uh, crucial to me. And, mm. and certainly I, I would not be, you know, I guess some people might consider me successful. I wouldn't have been able to do nearly what I've been done without the love and support and companionship of my wife, mm. who has just been really instrumental to me, mm. um, in, uh, developing as a person, as a mm. professional, um, and serving in my faith community and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a big part mm. of, of my identity. And, cer- and and then again, my 
belief in a higher power and mm -hmm. a higher purpose to our mm -hmm. existence mm -hmm. is a big driving force to me. Mm. But again, you sometimes lose that in the day-to-day -day yeah. and you need to be reminded, which again, for me, is one of the reasons it's important for me to go to church regularly and mm -hmm. be reminded mm -hmm. of these things. Okay, it's a relationship, stupid. You need to you know, not spend so much time doing this. <laughs> yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Because like you said, it's attention. It is attention. Yeah. So to have those continues. So you'll definitely get the, the other reminders often and frequently from yourself and from those around you. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I welcome them most mm -hmm. of the time. <laughs> they're good for me. Even, yeah. even on those days that I'm cranky and don't welcome them. But, yeah. That's true. Uh, they're, they're very important. That's true. So, so another question, just to kind of wrap up yeah. and a word of encouragement for listeners to what gives you hope? And you've alluded to this already a little bit, but on a day-to-day -day basis, just big picture wise. My hope is in the positive potential of human nature mm. and the the love and the warmth that I have experienced in personal relationships. Mm. Mm. Again, um, there's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of problems in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be naive to that, mm. Mm -hmm. but uh, I do believe that people are basically good mm. and that they want to do mm. what is right. Now, certainly there are exceptions and... And we need to deal with those mm -hmm. exceptions and and do our best to contain them and and so forth. But most people, they want to be happy mm. and they want to, uh, even if they don't always consciously realize this, they want to have good relationships. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and helping people realize that, educate them, and what is the type of life that will lead you mm. to be most likely to develop those good relationships, mm -hmm. I think we have not done a good job for mm. that for our young people. Yeah. So um, I don't mean to put a negative spin on that, yeah, but, but my yeah. hope is that with better education, mm -hmm. better enlightenment, mm -hmm. uh, you know, young people are struggling with a lot of challenges mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. but I think that that there is a lot of hope for them. Yeah. So. Yeah. All said, and, and I appreciate you bringing the reality and attention to those too yeah. in ways that we can improve. Um, again, this has been a great conversation. I'm definitely looking forward to reading through the book. Just to remind listeners, it's called Purpose, What Evolution and Human Nature Imply About the Meaning and Purpose of Our Existence. Sam, definitely appreciate you being here on the podcast. Looking forward to more conversations, formally and informally. And I know that listeners will get a lot out of this conversation as well. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Of course. 